Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... Don't don't fall over dead at your door <laughs> when you could actually finish feeling strong. These days, I think the only people who put a lot of value on BMI are the medical aid companies. Not a single rugby player is considered to be normal weight, and in fact, many of them are considered to be obese. It is 2021, and uh, who can believe that we are talking a year not quite a year, but probably a year in terms of the global pandemic. I think it was a year ago that this thing kind of surfaced. And uh, in March last year, we were locked down here in South Africa. And uh, the rest of the world, I guess, is uh, in various stages of lockdown, as we talk to you uh, from our base here in Cape Town. I can tell you that today is one of those perfect days in terms of weather. Ross and I are planning to go out for a ride a bit later on today. Yesterday, it was like 57 degrees Celsius, so it felt like that. In the shade. In the shade. It was so hot. I mean, we were sitting in the offices and basically, you know, when you get that sweat underneath your underneath your thighs and you have to peel yourself off your off your chair. I had Fancy that, leather chair. I had that, I had that yesterday. Uh, but today is a perfect day. There's a little light light uh, rain coming down and uh, the trail that we're going to ride today is, is, is going to be nice and compact and what they call it is hero dirt in cycling terms where the dirt is just wet enough where it gives you a bit of grip and uh, so we're expecting some fast times. Unfortunately we can't celebrate with our usual uh, beer because in South Africa uh, we are not allowed by alcohol at the moment because uh, uh, our South African population unfortunately <laughs> is uh, when they can drink they drink heavily and they fill up the hospitals and then the hospitals can't cope with the, the COVID cases so We'll be drinking some non-alcoholic beverages, I guess, after our ride today. But I guess it is just one of those things that we have to deal with during these strange times. But uh, today, uh, with myself, Mike Finch, and Professor Ross Tucker, and I know we haven't been with our podcast for a little bit of time, so apologies to all of our listeners. Uh, we take, took a bit of a break over the festive season. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit today, first of all, about what our plans are for the first half of the year. And you guys can kind of have a bit of a, a look at how we brainstorm some of the ideas. We are going to focus on some things that I'm quite keen to talk about, um, one of them being BMI. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about explain what that means and why it's important uh, for us, particularly anybody that rides or runs about what BMI actually means. And Ross will kind of explain that. And also to talk largely about the kind of themes that we're looking forward to. And Ross, before we, we started the podcast today, you said that I think what we should be doing is talking about health, health across different parts of this podcast yeah i think that the podcast will as always focus on current events in the news so when the tour de france happens we'll cover it and when if <laughs> if the olympics happens yeah. i very confidently predicted in our last podcast of 2020 that the olympics would go ahead and that prediction is looking less and less certain by the day is it yeah there's a big move now to say actually can we can we responsibly do this given yeah. the new variant which well more than one variant now actually there's a south african variant there's a uk variant mm -hmm. which certainly appear to be more transmissible um yeah. and have i'm sure in large part contributed to this incredible acceleration in the second wave which is why we can't have alcohol yeah. well it's the root cause the the reason is as you just explained um mm -hmm. 
and has put many parts of the world back into not quite severe lockdowns, but pretty pretty stringent ones. Case, yeah. And it may well affect the Olympic Games. And so, for instance, they're talking about enforcing a 14-day quarantine for any athlete who comes in. That causes all kinds of problems because mm. some events finish close enough to the Olympics that you couldn't do both. Mm. Uh, I know in the Tour de France, you, you couldn't finish the tour and do the Olympic Games and do a 14-day quarantine. So one mm. of the three has to give. <laughs> Yeah, and then how do you get fans there? How do you manage the travel in and out of the country? Uh, so it's it's looking looking fragile at this point. But anyway, point is, if it happens, we'll cover it. What about if they? This is just an idea that popped into my head. What about an Olympics that was in various cities around the world? So let's say the athletics was happening in Japan, but the cycling was happening in Australia, and maybe the the gymnastics is in Moscow. I mean. Maybe that. I mean, I wonder if they've ever thought about doing something like that. I don't know. I suppose it's not really I mean, feasible. They could have thought about this model where giving giving the Olympics to one city is economically mm. d- fair disaster. Mm. I don't know. Maybe maybe one or two have done well off it, but I think for the most part, cities that host the Olympics run a massive loss. Yeah, and That's I know right. that there was a extensive discussion around giving the Olympics to a country instead of a city so that you could spread. I mean, in the end, the money probably comes from the same place, yeah. i.e. the taxpayers' pockets. Mm. But at least if you have it in different cities, there's, a, there's an element of sustainability because a swimming infrastructure in a city might be more sustainable when it's in a different city compared to the cycling velodrome. And you could use the Olympics as a, as a trigger for infrastructure development across the whole country. It might be a bit better than yeah. having six white elephants in one city. Totally. But if they haven't done that, then I struggle to see that they would get their heads around doing them in different countries. Different countries so yeah. that might be like if we're going to take one step at a time, then let's give it to a country, then a, then, a, mm. then the world. So I don't know. I mean, they can't postpone it again. So I think it's either 2021 or not at all Vast, for Japan. Yeah. And there are massive economic implications. Oh. But there might at this point be bigger economic implications from having it. Mm. Negative implications. Yeah. Um, because of what it might do to COVID globally. So... It's a it's horrible for Japan. Maybe they can spread the Olympics out over a longer period so that there's sort Perhaps. of quarantine times are yeah. yeah, which which is more feasible if you don't have spectators because mm. you don't need to worry about their mm. <laughs> availability. So I, I don't know. I mean, I hope it happens. I um, but I think it'd be unbelievably cool to have like two months of the Olympics, but the first sort of you know, the first two weeks is maybe the, 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 the track and field elements of the track and field. And then, so you kind of got this almost season of the Olympics at the yeah, festival games. of sport for yeah, over two I months. Think it'd be amazing. It'll be like 2020's festival of cycling where we did exactly. not have a day exactly. without cycling for about seven weeks or more. And actually, to be, honest, to be honest with you, and I never thought I'd ever say this, but by the end of the Vuelta, at the end of that sort of month and a half of heavy cycling, I was actually tired of watching cycling, which I have never had before. So maybe we do have a dose on sports. But I remember the Monday after the Walter finished by three o'clock that afternoon, I was thinking, what am I going to do with my, <laughs> yes. with my day? I have nothing to watch. So anyway, I hope the Olympics happens, but no. obviously not at the expense of global health. If it pushes us into a third wave mm. or, or prolongs, a, mm. I mean, surely the second wave will be over by then. Yeah, so that's a that's a big thing. And interestingly, I saw Japan haven't really gotten ahead of the queue in terms of vaccines. Mm. So I thought that that would be the thing that enabled it. But the rollout of these vaccines hasn't been anything like what I think people hoped for. Mm. So 
Anyway, if it happens, we'll cover it. If it doesn't, well, we'll yeah. talk about why it didn't. Because um, you were quite excited about getting into the nitty gritty of some of the specific smaller sports like rowing. And I think we should maybe still do that because I think it is fascinating to to think about those smaller sports and actually some of the mechanics around gymnastics, for instance, mm. that you and I don't necessarily understand very well. But getting somebody from gymnastics to explain what a 9.8 actually means on the vault, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, like I watch Simone Biles and I see she does things no one else can do and I wonder why. Um, and how much more difficult are they that nobody else has ever successfully, I'm sure they've tried them, but never successfully done them in competition. E- even, I mean, you and I both live and breathe cycling, but I don't know that much about track cycling Yeah. technically, scientifically. I've heard track cycling described as science on wheels. They say that it's the... Well, they being in in this countries that have done well in it, they've just invested massively in sports science. Mm. And the theory was, I think it was an Australian who said it, is if you just throw a lot of sports science at it, you can be 5% better, and then you win half the medals. And I think, well, what what is that sports science? And it's obviously aerodynamics and the suits and mm. the bikes and the equipment. But well, to 5% really, is a lot. Well, yeah, but to really get <laughs> into that, compared to your normal, I mean, you, you I mean, you wrote a, a a paper about this a few years ago about how the difference between yeah, yeah. goal yeah. Uh, medals and fourth. Is what point, half a percent on average? Half, half yeah. Percent. Yeah. So five percent so, is too enormous. Quite, it's uh, enormous. It's the, yeah, I might have thrown that number out there a little bit um, exagger- in exaggeration, but anyway, you get my point, listeners. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> so to discuss that, the gear ratios and the mm. power required to accelerate and then maintain, and the physiology of a track cyclist whose mm. effort lasts one or four minutes compared to what we typically watch for 150 days a year on the roads or mountain biking, it would be pretty cool to to dive into. Yeah. So so, and that's a, that's for us anyway, a mainstream sport. I know it's not for many in <laughs> the world. Yeah. And we don't know that much about it. So the Olympics mm-hmm. is a cool uh, window yeah. through which you can look at many sports. Sailing. I, I spoke with a friend recently who was an Olympic sailor in 2000 and 2004 mm-hmm. about coming on and talking to us about the conditioning. Because I knew this guy because we tested him. He, he used to cycle to keep fit. And I mean, he was an unbelievable cyclist. Mm. But he had upper body strength and endurance that was I've never seen anything well, like. Sa- it. Sailing was quite leisurely. No, not that, I mean at that level. It is. It is. The, these guys are superb athletes. Really, because they're jumping from one side of the. I suppose they're doing a lot of movements, a lot of action in yeah. a short race. Yeah. Yeah. So there's upper body strength, power, and endurance. Really, it's 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 amazing. And then kayaking. I mean, mm, yeah. So yeah, the Olympics will be great for us if it happens because it gives us the chance to explore and explain sports mm. science in a way that doesn't really hit the news except for I, that I always love I love the idea of these sort of um weirdisms I think is the best way to describe them where you think about sailing as this leisurely activity and yet if you took somebody's heart rate during a sailing event Olympic sailing event you probably find that it would be as cardiovascularly strain as straining as potentially somebody oh. doing the cycling road race easily um, which is which I always find quite easily. fascinating because mm. your perception is oh that's that's not cycling that but but actually effort mm. and it's not necessarily directly responding to what we perceive as a high effort sport right because we haven't experienced it so we can't relate yeah. and so we assume do you remember when we were cycling in the Cedarburg and we met the um Yes. The motorbike guys. The motorbike and the guy guys. told us they'd done a nine hour, mm. was it, was it, they rode for nine something hours, like it, yeah. 350k or something. And he showed us his heart rate average was. It was, it was where ours was 
on average, and we'd been riding for five hours. Yeah. So you know, effort level was the same. Yeah. Over a longer period, so, and they were riding motorbikes. Yeah. Anyway, that's not an Olympic yeah. sport. No. But on the other, then on the other end of the spectrum in the Olympics is shooting and archery, where the name of the game is to keep the physiology down. Yes. Um, and I remember seeing some studies years ago, which we can also explore if it happens, on brainwave activity. There was an Indian shooter who won gold. I think it was India's first gold medal in the Olympics. The Indians dominate that, don't they? I'm not sure. I, honestly, it's, I look, it's a South Korea. Um, the archery, anyway, I know is South Korea. Um, my my lasting memory of shooting at the Olympics was an American man who was winning and needed to basically hit the target in the last round. I mean, normally you're hitting the bullseye. Mm. And he needed to just hit the piece of paper. And he shot the wrong target. He shot. <laughs> he hit the target in the alley next to his and he lost the medal as a result. Oh. And I remember watching that going like, oh, man. By mistake? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and for uh, the wrong target. He actually aimed and hit the wrong target in the bullseye. <laughs> so, anyways, but, but I remember seeing these studies on EEG activity and how it was different compared to normal people doing the same task. And so, so like even things like that, really fascinating little insights that you'd never ever think to ask or wonder about, mm. but they're there. So that will be... Because shooting disciplines, cool. actually, there, 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 there was instances of drug use for shooting wasn't there because what would you take to calm yourself down so beta blockers because they suppress the immune system so uh, not immune system system. see i've got that we'll get there uh (laughs) they suppress the sympathetic nervous system Mm. um because your sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight Mm. and it uses adrenaline and so beta blockers slow the heart rate slow the breathing rate calm you down and then obviously you can execute Mm. what is an extraordinarily precise skill Mm. without because even the slightest tremor, mm. um, if you can't control your breathing in relation to the shot, then that's five millimeters, and that's <laughs> anyway. So it's like taking it's, a good photograph in low light. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 You use a tripod. They don't yeah. have yeah, the luxury. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's so many sports that we could peel back and explore. So I really okay. hope that it happens. I mean, if it doesn't, we'll still have cycling. We'll still have track and field. I hope and. Mm. There'll be other things to talk about, but the Olympics was last year's big focus. Now it's this one, and fingers mm. crossed that they, they pull it off. Well, even if it doesn't happen, let's let's make some commitment that we will have at least talking about some of the Olympic sports. Mm. We'll pick a uh, dozen sports, yeah, half absolutely. a dozen, half a dozen yeah. sports. Yeah. And you listeners, welcome to message us and tell us if you've got a sport and if you know of an expert or you are an expert, mm. then hit us up. Yeah, and we'll we'll use you. <laughs> we'll together communicate this hidden side of your sport, whatever it is. Yes, let's do it. Yeah. So on to some of the subjects that we're going to be talking about in the first half of this year, and obviously because of this pandemic, one of the things that we have focused on on the magazines that I edit, Runners World and Bicycling here in South Africa, is one of our cover lines this month is "Join the Movement: Seventy Five Expert Tips and Plans to Get Fit, Burn Fat, Boost Immunity, and Be Happy." Mm. And when I was thinking about some of those lines and looking at some of the sort of social media chatter that we see from readers, particularly. Sport, particularly running and cycling, has become less about performance and more and more about health. So the people that I talk to, because there aren't events to necessarily focus on, they are more focused on the fact that they just want to be healthy. And one of the things that we were talking about before this is what does what does healthy mean in terms of mm. how we participate in sport, how we eat, how psychologically we deal with the stresses of our sports that we do. Um, so maybe you can just maybe just embellish a little bit on what your thoughts are around what is healthy sport as opposed to 
not really unhealthy sport, but maybe competitive sport. So yeah, an anecdote to, to start with, because obviously we're all, our lives have changed immeasurably in the last nine, 10 months, especially, and doesn't seem like it's going to go away in the next while is here in, here in Cape Town, we have a couple of publicly accessible walking trails in the forest on the mountain. And used to be, I, I used to go with a mate of mine once a week and I used to park there and there were six or seven cars in the parking lot and we'd go up there and if you saw one other person, it would be a lot. You'd say a busy day. Now, you go cycling at 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday and there you cannot find parking within two kilometers of the start of the trail. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing. Yeah. Uh, and that's the case in five or six different places that you can go. Yeah. And so my impression is that one of the upsides of lockdown and COVID, and that sounds weird to say, but you've got to, I suppose, look for silver linings, is that people have become more and more aware of the mental health benefits and the physical health benefits of getting out. Mm. When those... When those outdoor freedoms were taken away from them and then returned, people said, thank you, I now know or want this so badly that I'm going to actually do it again. And it's yeah. it's persisted. And isn't that amazing? I mean, yeah. every time I go past the forest, I think, man, I'm A, I'm glad I didn't have to park three k's away to start my walk. Mm -hmm. And B, like how amazing it is that so many people are now engaged that didn't maybe used to be. Yeah. So, so that's anyway, so that's a long-winded way of getting to the answer to your question, which is, there's no doubt that the benefits emotionally, mentally, physically are enormous from exercise, but that it doesn't have to be high-performance sport and training. Yeah. Just being out and active is going to be enough for many, many people. And I know you and I were talking in December about Strava released a report saying how much more active people were in 2020 than ever oh, before. Incredible. And obviously, Strava's growing itself, so you expect growth mm. in addition to growth you know i mean obviously they've <laughs> more mm. and more people are uploading might not be that they're exercising more but i think it is happening you've told me that bicycle sales cannot keep up with demand yeah, yeah. Uh, i'm sure that running shoe and training is the same so i think it's great i think that this is a wonderful move towards exercise for health people have understood now that exercise is medicine i mean that's been a that's been a bit of a slogan or a phrase that's been around for a decade, maybe even more. Um, but people have embraced that and they're now taking the medicine more and more. So I don't know if I'm answering your question now, um, the way that you asked it. Remind, I've, I've lost track a little We're bit. We're talking a little bit about what, 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 what is health versus performance. Right. So and we have touched on this in the past on, on a podcast last year, mm -hmm. a little bit about when we talk about this time and the lack of competitive events that you can do, that we talked a little bit about training hard during this time, probably mm. not advisable because you want to maintain your health. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we're trying to sort of get to is that when you talked about the mental health benefits, I mean, we know about mental health benefits. I've always been fascinated a little bit about this idea, what they what they call in Japan, forest bathing. <laughs> and I, yeah. at, at one stage, I was reading a book about forest bathing, about how the sort of pheromones of the trees and the trees talk to each other. And I, I don't really honestly know whether there's a lot of science in that. I'm sure that you'll look at that very skeptically. But there is something about as you've just described, being out in the open, being in a forest, the, the sound of it. For us, it might be going for a ride. For me, riding has now become something that I feel should be a stress reliever rather than necessarily a fitness yeah. motive. And because of that, I'm probably riding more regularly and more responsibly than I was before. And I think a lot of the people that we ride with and, and discussing some of those issues with other riders that we ride with, 
that certainly seems to be the theme that it's less about what is the target in terms of an event mm. and like okay i, I, I want to make sure i get out four times a week and sometimes i'm just going to go zone two for two hours yeah obviously this depends a great deal on personality yeah. and stage of life um when i was younger and even now to some extent some days you actually just want to ride hard for time and performance mm. you want to do the same ride as normal but five minutes faster or whatever mm. it is and successfully doing that is the stress relief yes uh, failing to do that adds to stress which is why one has to be careful because <laughs> it's windy Strava today slaves. and now i feel worse than i did before yeah. but so, so so a lot of people young guys young women are more focused on the time and the performance than they mm. are the relaxation and that's fine because if they do that and get out of it what they intended to then it's working for them in a way that might not work for someone else who mm -hmm. is really just there because they want social like whatever it is mm. but i'd go so far as to say that generally speaking the pursuit of performance is probably not healthy mm. uh, in the sense that high performance athletes are probably less healthy than recreational athletes mm. in many respects mm. so a high performance distance runner cyclist is probably on the lower limit of maintaining healthy weight all the time the stress levels that they impose upon themselves through training are probably not sustainable for long periods. And unless that person is sensible and recognizes the need for weeks off, days off, blocks off, they are going to ultimately cause unhealthy patterns or outcomes in the quest for performance. I'm looking at you here, you know that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, let's, let's tell your story. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've said to me a couple of times, you feel like you are, particularly because you relatively new to cycling in terms of your commitment to it in this so, latest block yeah, yeah i mean so i used to cycle so six, a lot, months ago, six months ago six months ago riding mm. yeah six well, how long has it been five months it was, months? It was june so june. seven months got yourself a mountain mm. bike started riding every day pretty much yeah. and then and i was uh, up at i was up at 12 13 hours a week yeah and they were they were all hard hours because i loved i loved the pain no yeah. that makes me sound weirder and more stupid and hardcore than i intended to be but i i like the feeling of like hurting on a climb mm. pushing oh, hard it is nice and i got a mate who came riding with me richard and he all, he's the same he used to be an elite triathlete so he lived for that yes <laughs> and so we 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 spurred each other on mm. And every we say this is an easy ride. First, first <laughs> climb, mistake. first climb. Let's actually, I'm feeling pretty good. Let's go for it. Uh, and eventually, you lose in series. You lose your ability to sprint, mm. and then to do those hard one minute efforts, then the hard five minute efforts. And by the by the end of November, I felt like I was rinsed. I was absolutely wrung out. Mm. <laughs> so, what have you learned? That I have to be disciplined, A, about who I ride with when. Because <laughs> some people... So rides with me. <laughs> some, see, some people will push you. Mm. And that's that's amazing, but not five times a week. Yeah. And I mean, he's he would say the same thing if you ask he, him. He tells, he tells me the same thing. <laughs> because whenever I go he's, with Ross, it's, it's hard. Yeah, because we just love... Mm. You see, we both... That's one of the things we love the most about riding is, mm. let's see if we can do this climb in five minutes, not five and a half. Yeah. Cool, let's yeah. try. Okay. And then... So anyway, it's... You so you're finally to, getting some sort of balance to, yes. to the way you're riding. I'm definitely learning to pick my battles yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing is, like, I'm a, I'm well aware of what's happening. Yeah. At the time, it's not yeah, like yeah. it's not like this is happening to me. 
Yes, we know. The th- we, so, you know the theory. Do as do it. Do it. Don't do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, yeah. That's kind yeah, of what, exactly what was happening. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that it's yeah. going to happen. I mean, it's not new though. I remember when barefoot running was a thing. I ended up getting a stress fracture from mm-hmm. barefoot running. Well, let's try it because I had to try it, and mm-hmm. I tried it too much. And mm-hmm. so next thing, I broke my, cracked my second metatarsal. I think it was. Yeah. In a boot for three months. Oh, shucks, you know. So this is normal. I mean, like. Yeah. So this is why, the reason why I asked you that question is because at this time of the year, and we see it in the magazines, this is when people start thinking about what their new year plan is. And a lot of them say, I'm going to be fit this year. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to exercise, et cetera, et cetera. And somebody very close to me is doing exactly the same thing. She has been basically doing nothing for four years. And now she's walking every day. And I've said to her, look, you need to, yes, you can walk, but walk for three weeks before you start thinking about running because your body's going to take some time to get used to this. If you had to give tips to somebody who's starting from mm. a low base or no base, what are the sort of the, the golden rules of beginning exercise? I, I think the number one thing is you have to fix it so that you'll win it. So when you set a goal, you must set a goal that you'll achieve because nothing, nothing motivates like success. So give me an example so, of that. So, for instance, don't go out and try and run 5Ks on day one. Right. Walk around the block. And, and finish it off as well. finish that walk around the block with a congratulatory virtual pat on the back and say, right, I did it. Next time it'll be twice or I'll do it faster. And you, you see, you have to you, – you, it's difficult to set targets because you have to stretch yourself, otherwise mm-hmm. you'll never adapt. But if you go too far and you fail – then it's quite easy, especially for people who are starting out and who've never really done it, to react to failure in a positive way. Yeah. And so you maybe for every three goals, for every goal that you set, you want to successfully, sorry, for every 10 goals that you set, nine of them must be achievable with relative ease and one of them must be a stretch target. I agree with you 100% and so, on Yeah, that. So, so it's really just like rig it so that you're going to win it, you know? Don't... Mm. It's the same thing as like if I wanted to take up tennis again, I'm not going to go play with a semi-professional. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Actually, maybe if he's, if he's kind to me, that might be quite a good way to do it. But I'm not going to go play competition. No. I'm going to practice before I expose myself to the, possib- the likelihood mm. of certainty of defeat. <laughs> mm. So, so don't, don't go out and do things that are guaranteed to, to mm. break you and to make you lose. The interesting thing about running, and, and, and this is obviously an area where you know, I've been working on Runner's World for 20 years, so I've learned a few things through the, through the years. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Is there any science to suggest that your cardiovascular system is slightly more, adapts quicker than potentially your muscular structure? Because one of the things that I think often happens with runners or beginner runners is they start off cardiovascularly, they're, they're actually, they're okay-ish. 
and then but their legs haven't adapted so when we ever give people programs to start running we put them on a a six-week program to run 20 minutes after six weeks it starts with four minutes of walking one minute running times four and we kind of move up from there the idea is that you need to almost allow your body to adapt to the rigors of particularly running Mm. because your cardiovascular system is often outstrips it yeah and the other thing that protects you is that your cardiovascular and your respiratory system so now we're talking heart and lungs are self-regulating systems because if you go out and run out the door and you go off at five minutes a k as a beginner within a minute or two you're going to actually be hurting yeah you won't be able to breathe you'll feel like you're on death's door and therefore you'll stop so it actually limits itself yeah the ligaments and the muscles don't do that and so what happens there is that they incur damage that you are unaware of mm. over the course of many minutes or k's or whatever it is hours and then all of a sudden they reach a they reach a threshold for failure and then suddenly you have an injury and you say where did that come from i had no indication <laughs> whereas when you are asking too much of yourself cardiovascularly you have every indication because it just hurts mm-hmm. so you're right and so two in two respects it's far easier to make decisions and to adapt cardiovascularly and to ma- monitor and manage your efforts mm. than it is your ligaments and joints you don't feel your ligaments necessarily yeah so mm-hmm. so if you're going to talk about a chain's weakest link the the paradox is the weakest link is the cardiovascular system which which then limits you but in actual fact the thing happening below the surface is yeah. the thing that's ultimately going to stop Absolutely. you yeah. so that's why it's quite tricky especially running mm. and so you have to walk before you run to use a cliche which is the advice you gave to this friend of yours mm. um but that can be frustrating because they'll feel like walking is easy yeah um and then again it comes to those goals and personalities some people would say forget this i'm running yeah that's the candidate for injury and burnout or whatever mm. it is i mean exhibit a being me <laughs> um so well, we learn we so, our own scientific experiments that, and that's how people we? have to take this yeah so yeah. so if this if a person then is frustrated like okay fine run today go for two minutes Mm. instead of a 20 minute walk after eight go two minutes and then mm. do another eight and finish with a two minute run mm. and see how you feel okay maybe your joints will protest the day after then you walk if they don't try three and so you're just constantly trying to find where your own ceiling is yeah um so yeah that's that's key is set set goals accept those goals will mm. be, feel maybe a little bit easier and then and then the, then the second golden rule is consistency mm um i think by now what are we 15th of jan we're probably in the phase where a lot of people's new year's resolutions have already been violated or broken mm, or been challenged challenging and yes and so they've said and for one week they succeeded and they're finding now actually they're losing motivation you're better off doing exercise every second day than nothing for five days and then everything in two yeah um so so the consistency and the the rhythm of your training is the next second so that really there's two things it's trigger to win it and be consistent so a couple of tips I want to throw in there, and I think you you touched on this right at the start. It's about almost playing mind games with yourself about that motivation thing. And there's these two ways that I think sometimes, and it kind of goes against the norm, but this, but one of the uh, two people that I'm training with at the moment on the running side is one of them is relatively new to running, and instead of plodding along at seven minutes a k for a five k, she's committing to a five k. But what we're doing is we're building in fartleks, so when she's running she's running at a reasonable speed 
In other words, she's not plodding along at seven minutes a K in that terrible sort of plodding zone that we that you hate. She's feeling like she's running faster. She's not sprinting. It's that kind of almost like that two and a half kilometer pace that, that she's doing. And I always say at the end of those runs, let's let's finish with with one of those those fart licks and then walk the last couple of minutes to cool down because it's a case of making your body feel faster mm. so that you're inspired to keep going back. And I think that that, that I'm a massive fan of fartleks because of that. Mm. Fartleks are not intervals. They are speed. There are, there are phases where you run at a, at a comfortably hard pace mm. that is manageable, but makes you feel like you, you know, you're as close to a Kenny you're ever going to be. <laughs> um, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I, I, I love that kind of running. I have friends who just want to go out and do 40 minutes. Mm. But I would far rather do high intensity stuff with rest in between mm. that I can obviously not flat out sprints, but manageable stuff. Mm. And I think there's a big, big benefit to that. There's also a big benefit in how you finish. You know, you want to leave the table hungry, but positive. Yeah. yeah. And um, there are some studies not on sport, and I might, I might butcher my recollection of this. But Daniel Kahneman, who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow which is an outstanding book. If you ever want to understand your own thinking and your potential biases that influence how you view things and evaluate things but are unaware of, subconscious bias, that's a great book to read in 2021, Thinking cool. Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they did these studies where people go in for colonoscopies, which is not a fun ex- fun <laughs> procedure to have done. And what they discovered is that if the, if the doctor leaves the probe in for the last 10 minutes but without moving it around... The, the pain score in the colonoscopy is lower in the last part, and you're more likely to go back for another one if that's the case. So in other words, you want to you have your people leave with the most recent thing being favorable, whereas if the procedure ends on a painful note, you're less likely to go back. Exactly, yeah. And so that was, a, that was a bias that they revealed through that experiment. I mean, it's actually fun and exactly because it was, it was pretty nuanced. No, I tell you, I mean, and it's fascinating because something happened to me a couple of days ago that absolutely supports that. I went and had vitamin B ejection from my local doctor because I'm yeah, feeling that, a bit that tired. Hurts. I mean, I had one as no, well. No, no, this is the question. So he yeah. puts it in the arm, but what he does, just before he gives the injection, he, he slaps the arm yeah. and, and then he puts the injection. I've had two from him in the last two weeks. I didn't feel it at all. And I said to him, I didn't feel that. And every time I've had a vitamin B injection before, it burns like hell. Oh, yeah, they do. Because because I hit your arm, your brain's thinking about the fact that I've hit your arm, and it doesn't identify the fact that I'm not putting an injection on the side of your arm. Mm. It, it's kind of the same thing, but it's a way of like yeah. your your body's ability to you're you're able to trick your body into a into a positive mm. and, and, remembrance. And here I'm I'm leaving thin ice to basically try and walk <laughs> on water. If I the thin ice of Kahneman's work, but I know in physiotherapy there are theories around. I think it's called gait control, where you you can apply. You know, pressure relieves pain. Yeah, that's because you stimulate different nerve fibers mechanically, mm-hmm. and then you can actually try and like almost deceive the brain into thinking the pain signal is not there because the pressure signal is there. I've I at the dentist. She the dentist that I go to now uses a method for injection because the most painful part of the dentist is that injection, <laughs> injection. especially when it's into your palate or your gum. I mean, oh, it's just it's I like it's like swallowing it. a swallowing a, a hive of bees. <laughs> uh, and she does the injection. It's completely painless because it also applies pressure followed by an injection. And then you say, are you done? She says, yeah, finished. So anyway. Um, well, so she's actually sort of pushing with a finger or something on the, that the, zone. It's actually the device. It, I said, uh, can you show me this device? It was really very interesting. Clever. But um, anyway, the, the principle 
as pertains to behavior change is if you if you give people a good last impression you know the last 10 minutes of an hour and and they leave feeling actually that wasn't so bad that that you create in them a bias that actually enjoyed it more than if you even if you ended it earlier but if it ended after 50 minutes of with pain (laughs) they're less likely or less inclined to come back and so with exercise it's the same thing don't don't fall over dead at your door (laughs) yes when you could actually finish feeling strong and then walk at home and enjoy yourself and feel good about it anyway that's there's a hill that you and i do on our friday afternoon rides where it's probably the hardest part of the ride but it's a hill that comes down off the top of the sort of trail that we do and it ends just before we get to to my house and I always find it fascinating because the thrill of that hill oh, yeah. is sometimes yeah. what keeps me coming back the yeah. next week because I go, that is that my adrenaline's pumping. We've been cranking it up at fifty k's an hour on a yeah, flat. Yeah, it's, it's our Olympic time trial. It's it a is. team pursuit time trial. It is, and it's, I mean, it it's, it's 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 vaguely childish and and, and immature. <laughs> but but the point is, is but it because it it's about, with a good feeling because it's about three or four percent downhill. We can yeah. go fifty k an hour and feel like Olympic athletes. Totally. And you finish it feeling like a warrior. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a good lesson in that. Yeah. So if you are uh, new to your training plan for this Just year, whether you're riding or running, yeah. One other sorry. One other thing I meant to say is one of the most interesting blocks of research is the individual response to training on speaking of training adaptation mm. now so a podcast we should really do is genetics of training trainability right and when you asked earlier about the cardiovascular system adapting faster there are some people in which it doesn't adapt at all which is really very interesting and there was a series of studies done a while back now but they looked at these genetic markers and they put a hundred or so people through a standardized eight-week training program, and they measured VO2 max before and after. And in that group of, say, 100 people, you're going to get an average improvement of VO2 max of, say, 15%, let's call it. Yeah. But on one extreme, you'll get your super responders who get 40% better. Their VO2 max goes up by 1, 1.4, 1.5-fold. The lucky ones, right? But yeah, then on the other, <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who just do not adapt. Yeah. Uh, and so their their VO two max improves by one percent, if not nothing, right? Mm. So th- that's really interesting because then you then you say, well, are these people immune to exercise? <laughs> yeah. But it might be that they would adapt better to high intensity type training than they would to the constant endurance type load that they mm. tend to be given in that. So there's so many interesting things around that that I think would be interesting to explore as well. So yeah, that should definitely be a podcast that we do as yeah. well this year as we talk about health because I reckon the generic health advice probably hits the spot for 65% of people. Mm. It's probably too little for 17% of people and for the other 17 or so percent of people it might be too much or completely ineffective. It's interesting because you, you and I discussed these personality tests. Um, I did one last year called the Enneagram Institute, mm. which talks about your sort of personality. And it's, it's quite insightful. I mean, you, you know, you, it kind of tells you what you already know about yourself to some extent. Mm. But I'd be fascinated to be able to do that at a scientific level in terms of my physiology to understand what kind of athlete I am and therefore what do I what am I best suited to. And I did do something a while back, and I can't remember exactly where I did it, it might have been at the Sports Science Institute here in Cape Town, but I did some sort of test. And what it, what it came back with was that high intensity was certainly mm. my 
that was going to be the thing that was going to move the needle the best for me. Yeah. Yet I'd spent most of my life doing yeah. endurance. Well, this is what the DNA gene testing companies are selling you is this idea. That's where I got it. I did a gene yeah. test. That's where yeah. it was, yeah. And, and I'm not a massive fan of those because at this point, the sensitivity and the specificity, which is to say the 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 diagnostic accuracy of those tests probably isn't high enough to make good decisions based on. Mm-hmm. Now, in your case, it sounds like they got it right. I remember that I think it would probably have been the same company tested an athlete who was a multiple gold medal, medalist in our ultra races. So we've got mm-hmm. here in Cape Town, we've got Comrades, which is 90K. So that's like 58, 60 miles almost. 56 miles. And yeah. we've got a Two Oceans, which is a 30 mile more or less 30, race, I think it is. It's about... Two. 32 32 miles yeah anyway 56k and this woman was a multiple gold medalist in both those events and she had that test done and they came back and said you're suited for power and short duration (laughs) stuff so you're like well maybe she is and she'd have been maybe she'd been the olympic champion in the 100 (laughs) but she was the distance runner and anyways similarly they they reckon they can predict injury um Mm. outcome that when i used to work with the south african sevens they they came pitching that idea that we can tell you who's more likely to be injured. They say they can predict which sort of diet you should eat. And That's I think right. the problem is that while conceptually they might be sound, they are oversold. Yeah. Um, and the truth is anyone who's listened to our discussion over the last 10 minutes could have probably diagnosed you as a high-intensity athlete anyway. Why? Because you just said how much more you prefer doing fartlek and sprints and speed. But I'm not very good at it, though. Yeah, I'm, but- not, I'm not fast. At all. Yeah, but what are you, who are you comparing yourself to? I'm comparing myself Elliot to people Kip- I, I might <laughs> No, but I know that relatively speaking, my, I'm not a fast twitch muscle guy. I, I'm not a sprinter at all. I mean, if you put me in a sprint, I, I'm probably the slowest you'll ever, you know. But my ability to, be, to have endurance is definitely my strong point. But potentially, my endurance ability comes from high intensity training rather than riding long slow miles so then what's the dna test is the dna test well, right or wrong that's the i don't know yeah. that's so the that's question. where it's interesting yeah because yeah. i'm certainly not fast if you put me in a 100 meter sprint against yourself and probably everybody that i know i would pretty much say i'd be at the back i I'm not, i can't sprint at all yeah it's all it's all relative though yeah. like who do you compare to and yeah. in the different activities like the friend i mentioned earlier richard used to be an elite triathlete and mm. he he would be more than happy riding for 30 minutes at 250 watts mm. which would probably stretch the limits of my physiology yeah. at the same mass per kilogram because he yeah. is admittedly 15 kilos lighter than me yeah um but when there's a one minute climb on the mountain, then it's a different story. Yeah, he, he's only him. a few percent better than he is over 30 minutes. Totally. Yeah. So, so clearly there are going to be differences. Yeah. So, if I, anyway, point is a it's podcast on the genetics of sport yeah. and training would be yeah. pretty interesting to explore. And actually, so, so those of you listening, it would be very interesting if you want to get, get hold of us on Twitter and maybe, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about some of your examples and maybe what we could do is our patreon members we can actually get some of our patreon members to send some of their mm. sort of stats or thoughts about themselves and we can kind of do a very rough analysis of what kind of athlete they potentially could be mm. first of all not just from a physiological perspective but also from a psychological perspective because we probably can't get that into that in, in big detail today but the the psychological impetus and motivation is as as we've touched on is so different for everybody um because some people are competitive some people aren't I've got friends of mine who 
messaged me the other day. He runs regularly. He feels lost because there's no races this year. Mm. And I said to him, you know, go find a Strava segment that's a 10K loop over the mountain and make that your goal to get under an hour for that by the end of April. Mm. You set yourself a goal like that. But he struggles with that because mm. it's unstructured and it's not a race day and there's nobody else potentially doing it. So it, it is fascinating. And, and I'd be interested to hear, particularly from from our Patreon guys, and let's, let's, let's get a couple of those Patreon guys and have a little semi-analysis of, of their motivation and training. Yeah, so I think it'll be interesting. The psychology that. of training will be very interesting. Yeah. In addition, I mean, we've 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 threatened to do the psychology of elite athletes. Yeah. You know, the whole thing about sociopaths and psychopaths being better in sport. Yes. Uh, in the same way that I believe this might be misrepresented, but I believe that they are overrepresented in boardrooms, CEO positions. The sociopaths are more likely to be in those positions. <laughs> There's, there's a book called Snakes in Suits, which is probably a little bit sensationalist, but certainly I've heard that theory. Um, and I, and people people would argue the same about elite athletes, is that they have to be a little bit crazy. <laughs> you have to be, I mean, <laughs> in a good way sometimes. massively selfish. Yes, you've, you have I to know be. you've said that before, and it mm-hmm. is true. The, the elite athlete life is not compatible with normal social behaviors. Yeah. 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 Controversial. So, I'm sure we get a couple of people messaging us saying that, I'm a professional athlete and I think I'm a nice person, which you probably are. Well, I mean, like, remember last year we saw, it was, in fact, over the last two years, that UK system that won so many medals has mm. systematically been exposed as a as a toxic environment in which there is athlete bullying, there's exploitation, win at all costs, damages people. We, we mm. covered it a little bit when we spoke about Mary Kane and Salazar and the pressures that were put on young women to lose weight mm. and to reach targets and so on. So... That manifests in many different ways, but I think that there is a degree of mental <laughs> abnormalities yeah. that drive elite athletes. We um, had a very interesting um, interview with Dom Scott, I think almost 18 months ago now, yeah. um, and one of the things that she talked a little bit about was how she felt so guilty that's right. about the fact that she had to be so selfish, and there were so many people around her that were giving up so much for her to achieve her goals, mm. um, and, and the guilt was quite a strong thing for her and it was a motivator but it was also an emotional thing for her as well so, yeah. yeah so that's a that's a really yeah, interesting area and yeah. then there's the psychology of wellness and health especially in covid because i think you know we're so lucky we can get on our bikes and ride 60k away from home in mm-hmm. england and i think ireland now it's five kilometers is it uh, as of a week or so ago because of the acceleration in cases mm-hmm. And I saw on Twitter yesterday, police are stopping cyclists checking their residential address to make sure that they're not exceeding that five-kilometer radius. Sure. Um, at least they have the option of going outside. Remember when we were locked yeah. literally indoors. And I, I think that the mental cost of this is enormous. Um, yeah. And so the anyway, as, as it gets more and more prolonged, I think it'll wear on more and more people. So the psychology thing will be interesting. If we're going to cover health in the first three or four months of this year, that will be a focus for us. Well, we'll bring in, uh, hopefully we'll bring in one of our many uh, contacts and experts in that area mm. to talk to us about their mental health things, which is very important. Oh, last, last point on that is that mm. the NBA, we, we mentioned this in our last podcast, the NBA finished their season in a bubble mm. last year in which they basically put the teams in Orlando at a resort and they all had to share the same space, no outsiders. And I saw some data from that because they were asking those players how they were going mm. and they caused a lot of mental problems, really? a lot of anxiety, depression, loneliness, <sighs> um, because you're detaching people from their normal support environments and you are immersing them in a place from which they can't escape. And so you would have predicted this, but sure, they confirmed it. 
That's why. It's jail. Yeah, yeah, basically. Now, it's luxury jail in a sense, but it doesn't change it. And I was talking to some people involved in in rugby. They pulled off a tournament in Australia towards the end of last year in Argentina, um, traveled there, quarantined there, stayed together, stayed in isolation except for games. And it really does do a lot of damage Mm. to players to be that confined for that long with so many restrictions. Yeah. Um, and that's not unique there. That's the same that's cricket tough, tours, eh? all of it. So, anyway, I think I think the next ten months might throw up a few um, interesting discussions around the cost of COVID on mental health in sport. Yeah, yeah. I think for years we're going to see studies coming out of this, aren't they? I mean, in many ways. I mean, it's oh, there's so many different angles to look at this. In terms I mean, of, we talked it. about spectators in yeah. sport at the end of last year, how much that affects games and mm. outcomes. It's, it's it's a big thing. It's not it's not sport related, but I, I I look at like 13, 14 year olds who've been denied the opportunity for socialization at school, yeah. and I think how is this going to affect these people's mental health moving mm. forward? You know, mm. um, it's yeah. Anyway. So let's move on to something uh, a little bit more, uh, less uh, depro. Um, I, mean, I suppose the reality of, of COVID is that it's around and we have to deal with it. And we will uh, unpack it as, as it, uh, over the years, as it, as it uh, kind of goes away and comes back and vaccines become available, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I wanted to talk a bit about today is just, I was reading a story that we put up on our Runners World site um, yesterday, talking about this thing of BMI. And the reason why it's quite close to me is I'm 100 kilos I'm six foot four, which is 1.92 meters. Um, I, I definitely could lose a few kilos, as my doctor said to me the other day. But it, it brings into this this focus, particularly, and I don't know whether this happens around the world, but one of the things we have in South Africa is we have these medical aids that offer a whole bunch of reward programs. And one of these reward programs is based on what your BMI is. So you go into a testing center, they weigh you, they measure your height, and they say your BMI is X, therefore, you don't get as many points because your BMI is X. The story we wrote about is is the fact that does BMI really matter? And mm. what does it mean when we talk about BMI in terms of people that are active and athletic? It's funny because these days, I think the only people who put a lot of value on BMI are the medical aid companies. I remember last year posting some data. I'd done some analysis on the mass and height of international rugby players. And it wasn't even intended for this purpose. I was really just trying to show the evolution over time. And someone immediately came and looked at it and said, you know what, if you took these rugby players, the average mass and the average height of each position, not a single rugby player is considered to be normal weight. And in fact, many of them are considered to be obese. Now, these are elite sportsmen. Um, and you could argue that they might be a little bit over in certain positions. They're still probably carrying more weight than they they should. A couple of chunky chaps. And in we've there, seen yeah. actually, we've got a few in South Africa who after retirement from rugby have taken up cycling and are now lean, mean cycling machines. Yeah. <laughs> and so they keep they keep heavy for the sport. But you wouldn't you wouldn't call them unhealthy in the same way mm. that a, a person who's perhaps normal weight but never exercises or leaves home mm. is unhealthy. So most, most people in the public and in the space understand that BMI is a severely limited tool to diagnose or identify poor health. And going back 15 years, there was a guy who's still active as a researcher, I'm sure Stephen Blair, whose model was fit or fat. And mm. he was saying that actually you didn't have to be one or the other. You could actually be fit and overweight. And so these people have all progressively challenged the concept of BMI. The thing about it is that it's a blunt instrument. Let's just do it finally. It's a body mass index. Yeah, so mass divided by height squared, where mass is kilograms, 
and height is meters. Right. So I'll do the easiest sum possible. If you weigh 100 kilograms, which means you're pretty heavy. That's me. And you're two meters tall. It's yeah, 100 divided by two squared, which is four. So it's 25. Now, 25 puts you on the borderline of normal weight and obese, uh, overweight. Mm. Right. So generally, they say anything lower than 18.5 is underweight, where you might need to start looking at it because we know, and we've discussed that, you develop issues with bone, potentially reproductive function in women, menstrual health. And it's different between men and women, though, isn't it? Uh, the BMI doesn't, as far as I know, the BMI doesn't distinguish between them, which is okay. in itself your first indicator that this is a blunt tool. <laughs> because, <laughs> say, yeah. because clearly... Uh, Men have more muscle, women have more fat. And you're going to treat them with the same thresholds. It yeah. doesn't make sense even there. So you're out the blocks, you've seen the problem. Yeah. Um, okay, so 18.5. Then anything from between that and 24.99 or 25 is considered normal weight, which is, again, like an extraordinarily large range. I mean, you you could have a... A person whose normal height differs by 17, 18 kilograms and they still fall comfortably within that range because it is mm. wide. Mm. 25 to 30 is considered overweight, I think, typically, and then above 30 is overweight, uh, obese. Just grabbing my calculator quickly. Hang and on. then there's different levels of obese. Now, the thing that's happened, and you can understand why this has happened, is because when we talk about health, we're talking about metabolic health. Mm. That refers to things like your blood pressure, your triglycerides, your cholesterol levels, your glucose levels, your sensitivity to insulin, for instance. Are you diabetic or moving towards that? Those things are much more difficult to measure than height and mass. So when you want a simple tool that can be assessed over two minutes or measured in two minutes, BMI lends itself to simplicity Mm. and ease of measurement. And because of that, I think it's been overvalued. That's typical. If we can measure it, we value it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So, so that which is measured is then is rewarded, and and so companies that are in medical ads have played the odds, and they said if we take a hundred people, there's a there is a probability of X percent that those of those hundred whose BMI is over thirty are more likely to develop conditions later in life, and so they we don't want to insure them, or we yeah. want to make them pay more to be insured. Yeah, because they're higher risk people. Yeah. So you can kind of understand that. But the problem is it's such a blunt tool that invariably it discriminates against people who are healthy even though they're heavy. And the lucky ones are the ones who are unhealthy even though they're light but are treated as if they're healthy because they're lighter. Yes, because you can get thin and unhealthy. Right, so you get false positives and false negatives. A false Mm. positive is someone who is told that you are unhealthy because you're heavier when they're not. Mm. And you get false negatives, someone who told you're healthy even though they're not. They can't measure the stuff that really counts. And so therefore they they count the thing that shouldn't be measured (laughs) because it can be measured. So how do you and I measure our health then without going to have a full set of tests done at the doctor? I mean, can can you self-assess yourself and say, okay, I'm in a reasonable state of health. I know that I have to lose, you know, probably Mm. five kilos for me to be in a a reasonably health zone. Um, But I'm not going to obsess over my BMI. Yeah, I think you have to assess your behaviors. You know, so, Give me an example. Well, you're exercising four times a week, six to eight hours a week. That's healthy behavior. Mm-hmm. Your diet is healthy because X, Y, Z, or it's not. I mean, if I was to cast a stringent eye on mine, I'd give myself a middle grade average uh, score for diet because I know that it's not healthy. You do like Coke and chips. <laughs> well, that's my half. Especially halfway through a ride. Keep in mind the context is we cycled for an hour. I need a bit of sugar. <laughs> um, so I'm letting out some secrets here. <laughs> 
But I know that. I know that. I mean, if anyone said, would you? No, of course not. Mm. And that's, that's where, by the way, the whole diet debate gets on my nerves because people might come up with these straw man arguments and they say, mm. that's, I know it's not healthy. Like when I eat that muffin for breakfast or tea, mid-afternoon, mid-morning mid, mid tea, I know it's not healthy. Yeah. But you got to live. Yeah. I, I used to have a friend who was a health-obsessed guy and we used to go out to dinner and play quizzes and stuff. And he used to look at me with judging eyes for having a beer it's like ex-smokers because he would he would have water literally he'd have a still water and he's he an said, ex-friend because he's boring now no he left to go overseas he's still he's still a mate because we used to banter about it. he used to say i know that i could have water and i'd be a little bit healthier and maybe my running time would be 10 seconds faster for a 10k mm. But I don't care because the difference between a 38.40 and a 38.30 is irrelevant to me mm. compared to the happiness I get from having a social beer or yeah. five or whatever it is with Definitely. my mates. Yeah. So anyway, so it's trade-offs. The point was that your behaviors are an indicator of your health. And mm. so we know what's healthy behavior. We know that three to five hours a week minimum of activity made up of 30 minutes a day or 60 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous exercise is healthy. Therefore, if you're not doing it, you're not meeting a target. Yeah. We know that there are certain food groups. That's that a good should, number, three to five hours a week. That's what they say for general yeah. health. It varies. I mean, you get the 10,000 hours, uh, 10, not hour, 10,000 step model, yeah. 10,000 steps a day, which you generally can't do unless you do 30 minutes of structured training at least. Yeah. I mean, you could do it if you were floor supervisor in a warehouse, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> walking around for seven hours a day. Mm. But generally, people who work desk jobs need structured training for 45 minutes a day to get that. Yeah. Or like ACSM, which is the American College of Sports Medicine, I think theirs was 30 minutes of vigorous or 60 minutes of moderate low intensity exercise per day, which could be walking, swimming, cycling, whatever. Yeah. So so when, you, when you're saying to me, you're going to do a three-hour ride on a weekend and two middle-of-the-week middle, middle of the week rides and a run, you're getting the target, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, are you healthy diet-wise? Probably not where you want to be, but you know yeah. where to fix it. Are you healthy stress-wise? Mm. A lot of people neglect that one because work and life and family and relationships and kids and whatever, finances, are unavoidably stressful. Mm. But do you give yourself five minutes a day, start there, of quiet time, mm -hmm. meditation, whatever it might be that you think works, um, Put your phone away while you're watching Netflix. <laughs> yeah, like that's a, double screen. So that's my f if not that yeah. anyone's asked, but my New Year's resolution is to not have my phone near me while I'm doing other things because mm. otherwise I do half of each thing and I get stressed by it. Yeah. So anyway, that's so that's the old thing about that people that multitaskers are actually not that efficient. I remember reading something they the other day saying that multitaskers think they're better than mm. people that can focus on a single task. Right. Multitaskers are actually less efficient than yeah. people that and, can and focus. And what I realized in yeah. December is that I actually compromise my relaxation by multitasking it. Yeah. Because if I'm watching a good show or I'm doing something, I'm lying outside by the pool or whatever mm. it is, and I'm on the phone, I'm not, I've actually undermined the point. I've noticed that about you because I, I remember a couple of years ago, we would go out. We would we would meet a couple of friends for a couple of drinks, and often you would be on a on a Facebook or something or some sort of social media while we were having a beer. And mm. uh, and, and the funny thing is, is, I was also very guilty of that. And 
there's nothing more annoying to the people around oh, you when somebody yes, does that because yeah. when you see it it happens and, mm. and i i agree it's always you know keeping on the theme of sport the, the interesting lesson about that is one thing i learned a bit about last year was being in the moment mm. during your sport I was just gonna say be present be present yeah. so when you're riding your bike we did a tour um, with a group of friends last year ross and i and where we did a three-day uh, gravel bike trip uh, through the cedarburg near cape town beautiful riding uh, averaging sort of three to five hours a day um you, you can't think about the finish because if you think about the finish of your five-hour ride you're not present in the enjoyment of that time. So you start thinking about when you're climbing up that long hill, just appreciate where you are. Mm. And that applies, I think, to running as well, whether you're doing a 20-minute run or a a couple of hours on the bike. Being present at that time, first of all, it takes away the pressure of when am I going to get home, but it also means that you start appreciating how your body's operating. Am I breathing nicely? Am I relaxed? Am I appreciating the scenery around me? So that's mm. that's one of the things that I want to probably do this year is to then, focus on that. And then remember, we'd get to our campsites or our um, B&Bs or whatever it was, and there wasn't the best cell phone signal. Mm. And so we actually couldn't get on social media and, <laughs> and YouTube, whatever it was. So actually, mm. it was a complete break, which anyway, we're getting quite zen on this on this oh, I think preview it's good podcast. To talk about, I mean, I think these, we, are, yeah. these are actually important things. And totally. what we should do in 2021 is, is inject some scientific discussion to these concepts because we know they're true Mm. so now let's explain why they work and how they can be made to work better definitely yeah so anyway back to the health question is yeah sure bmi and people generally know if they've got a little bit of weight to lose i say generally because there's a lot of psychology that can be pathological as we've Mm. discovered interviewing people like amelia boone people who think they need to lose a lot of weight and they don't so other people sounding boards would be useful Mm. but generally you know couple of kilos here or there I could mm. lose that okay so then do it but not because you want to get your bmi under 25 just because you know that you can yeah. and you should maybe but then if you've got your stress behaviors your exercise behaviors and your diet behaviors right then then you'll be okay mm. then sure have the tests because there are people who are healthy and still have and okay now we're getting into like some other um, choppy waters but <laughs> cholesterol levels that some would say are high and dangerous They'll have high blood pressure and hypertension. I know healthy people who exercise a great deal who are hypertensive. That's a risk factor for stroke and cardiovascular events. So then you might want to consider other things, medical interventions or specific diet approaches that can address that, cut salt out of the diet, that sort of stuff. But but generally, I reckon 90% of the battle is just knowing your behaviors and getting them right. Just a quick sort of question and this is i mean we always hear this when we when we give advice or you see people advising on training plans go and see your doctor before you attempt to do any exercise is that still solid advice to go and do that sort of general checkup if you haven't done anything for a while i think if you took ten thousand young healthy people in their 20s or something one of them might be at risk from exercising without doing that mm-hmm. Is one in ten thousand that that's probably actually a higher risk than most of us would accept normally yeah. once you get older though now you've got the wear and tear on your body and you've got risk factors like hypertension and, and that sort of thing, then probably it is worth doing. Mm. Most times, I suspect it's a cursory checkup. The doctor yeah. will say, you know what, actually uh, you're generally in good health and you could go and do this. Just be careful about X, Y, Z, which is the stuff we spoke about 20 minutes ago. Mm. And then you go for it. And then in your minority of cases, there will be circumstances where the doctor says, actually, You've got a few risk factors here. We need to be a little bit more cautious, but it's not going to stop you. Yeah. I mean, it would be 
very rare for you to have a condition where the doctor says don't proceed mm. the question is how fast do you proceed that's really what you want to find out there and it's for, for reassurance so if you can do it then go for it if you can't then i think your default should be to assume that you're high risk and proceed as if you were mm. in, a, in a precautionary way mm. so if, if you're not going to go to a doctor then just accept that the trade-off is you're going to be more cautious than you would otherwise be and often it's sort of uh, quite logical i remember uh, talking to a doctor a while back and um, when, when all these COVID thing, you know, because COVID's going around so much, everybody always thinks you have it. And the doctor said to me, if you don't have a temperature and your heart rate's kind of where it normally is when, you, mm. when you're exercising, you're probably okay um, unless there's something really weird. And, and it's quite a, I mean, would you agree that that's a fairly mm. good way of judging, you know, get out and do exercise, get out and exercise and, and maybe wear the heart rate monitor so you have an idea of, how your effort level is and where you are, um, and 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 if you do need to get yourself a, a thermometer that checks your temperature just to be sure you're yeah. okay. It's, so temperature is not for me part of it. No, I remember reading a study right at the start of COVID when everyone was measuring our temperatures at every shop we went into. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure that's the case around the world. I don't know. Yeah, if it, certainly know, in South know. Africa, you can't go into a, a restaurant without having your Someone hold a, a gun to your forehead, not that kind of or gun. Your, but or, or your wrist gun. where it says your temperature's 32. Yes, and now you're happy. <laughs> Come inside, Mr. Cryogenically Frozen <laughs> customer. Um, and that was happening right from the start. And I remember finding a study back, I think it was 2003 or four, but when the SARS outbreak hit China and Hong Kong, they measured people at the airports. That was one of the things. And they measured like 9.7 million passengers. Yeah. And they found 970 cases of high temperatures. And of those 970, not a single one ended up being a SARS case. Wow. So it, it is, a, in my opinion, quite a futile method. One of the reasons it's futile is that when you get feverish, your temperature actually, the, the, the thermometer will measure it too low because your skin gets clammy. And that's what it's measuring. We've, we've gone, in fact, you know this because we've gone straight off the bike, a two-hour cycle, mm. where you know your temperature is 38, 39, because you've exercised. That's the question. Do you, does, your heart, does your temperature go up when you've been doing some your, exercise? Your internal core temperature does, does definitely. Oh, I don't know that. But those devices won't measure it because at the skin, you're cooling off because so, you're sweating, and that sweat is cooling your skin down. That's why I get that 32 degrees And, so, and yes. so that's why oftentimes when you go and have it measured straight after exercise, it doesn't register. Have you noticed that? Like, like it Well, gives I've you often taken message. my daughter to school where they measure our temperature, and I think, oh, they're not going to let me in today because my temperature is going to be high. But you're right, it's often lower than mm. normal. So, so they're, they're not a very, they're not a very good tool eh? to base your diagnostic decision on. My I, go I really didn't know. I thought your body maintained a homeostasis of a temperature sort of level that was always at the same 36 and a, and a bit no, we, we, we did studies. I mean, one of my PhD studies was a test in a heat chamber. We, we'd set this thing to 40 degrees Celsius and give them no wind. I mean, it was miserable. It was worse than yesterday's weather here in Cape Town. And we'd make them do 20K time trials. And the average temperature by the finish is 39.5. Now, and, and they feel, so this, I always, I've, often I've done this on this podcast. So how do you measure that through the year? Rectal uh, temperatures. Ours was, ours was rectal temperature mm. in the first studies back in the day. And then as technology evolved, you get these capsules that you swallow. They looked like giant pills. I mean, yeah. they, they weren't fun to swallow. I'll, I'll tell you that for free. They oh, they're were, fun to pass. Hey? <laughs> yeah. They, they, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's no real way to do this that's, that's pleasant, pleasant and not open to jokes. Um, so, it's, so we would measure this. I mean, rectal temperature 
Also, there's some issues around does it accurately represent what's happening in the true core better mm-hmm. than tympanic or um, surface temperature, obviously. Or tympanic even, being, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can measure the sensors and some studies you'll look at from the 90s would do that. Um, but yeah, that 39.5 average was the finish. We'd, we'd, occasionally, oh. we'd get a guy to hit 40. The, the Danish research studies used to have a cutoff of 40 degrees Celsius. They should stop the trial when they got there because you can get there from exercise, wow. even in a healthy person. In, in pathology, when the person's developing heat stroke, they go right through 40 and they go beyond it. There was a study done of a drug called bupropion, which subsequently got banned. It's a central nervous system. It's actually an antidepressant, but it had performance-enhancing characteristics only in the heat, not in the cold. And so they did this really nifty study. It was, it was great. Watson et al., if you want to look it up, where they'd give these guys bupropion hot and cold, and it would improve performance in the heat, but had no benefit in the cold. Mm. And the reason it helped in the heat is because it overrides the body's normal short circuit. Because mm. normally when we get to around 40, we're so hot that the hot brain says, no ways, this is not happening. It doesn't, it doesn't wait till we get to 40. It makes that adjustment early part of pacing mm. but with with bupropion in the system that just that signal seemed not to arrive wow. or was weaker and you could actually exercise them to 41 degrees celsius which is <laughs> dangerous where it does maybe get a bit harmful it's still very hard in the absence of pathology to to overheat yourself and kill yourself from hyperthermia but it can happen in those instances. Anyway, hyperthermia, hyper, yeah. high, okay. high temperature. High temperature yeah. We published a study, uh, Dale Ray et al. You can look it up. I'm an author, so if you looked up us and heat stroke, <clears throat> where we went to these um, ultra distance races that we've got. We've got the cycle tour, which is 109 kilometer biggest mass. Pot- I think it is still. Still, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Still the biggest uh, timed, biggest timed, timed mass participation race, yeah. event. Yeah. And that they've we've had half a dozen heat strokes in the last decade or two. Mm. And what's really interesting there is that those people get hot despite not exercising hard. Mm. So if you do a 10K time trial, that's high intensity for 35 minutes, 30 minutes maybe if you're really good. 50 minutes. That's perfect to get your temperature up to 40 degrees Celsius. Mm. What was happening in cycle tour was these guys were riding five hour, 20 kilometer an hour. Mm. I mean, it's not even high intensity. Collapsing off the bike, going to hospital, and they can't cool these people down. I remember being in the medical tent of Two Oceans, which is the 56K race, and they brought a guy in who'd collapsed on the course. And their method of treatment was a bucket of ice. They had these basically portable bathtubs filled with ice water. Mm. I mean, that's not fun. They put this guy in that bucket of ice, and half an hour later, he hadn't cooled down. So now you say, well, what's happening there? And the answer is, he's generating so much heat lying there that even the ice water isn't enough to combat it. So that's something has gone wrong in the metabolism where this guy is just, he's a furnace wow. because something has metabolically gone awry. It could be a viral virus or something. It could be triggered by a virus. It's, it's thought to involve calcium receptors and uranodyne. There's a, sure. there's a condition called malignant hypothermia that happens during surgeries where people react to anesthetics um, and their calcium, basically got these little calcium channels and they, mm. they just seem to malfunction and they just churn heat. Sure. Through metabolic activity. So anyway, it's very, it's really interesting. Really interesting. But the, yeah. but the fun story I always give is if you measured, like, so we'll ride this afternoon at the end of our Olympic pursuit time trial <laughs> to finish. You could measure us, and your what your heart rate hits one hundred and seventy-five. Well, um, no, my max is one hundred and seventy, but I often get to one hundred and sixty-eight. So your heart on a, on a downhill. <laughs> yeah. So your heart rate will be one sixty-eight. You'll be breathing sixty breaths a minute. 
Yeah. Your minute ventilation will be 150 liters per minute and your body temperature will be 39.1 degrees Celsius. Mm. If we showed those stats to a doctor out of context, he'd call a priest. Yes. <laughs> he'd say, give this man his last rites. He's something seriously wrong. Yeah. But, but we feel amazing. Yeah. Because the body, anyway, the moral of my story is that the body allows homeostasis to be disturbed during exercise because it can and it mm. actually helps us. And then it knows that a half an hour later, everything will have returned to normal. But in that moment, you look as though you're in the midst of a serious yeah, <laughs> catastrophe. <cardiovascular laughs> so, body breakdown. So it really is. It really is quite something. I mean, it is a good lesson then, in all seriousness, because I think if you come back and you have done a hard ride or a hard run or, or whatever it is, and, and, you, and you have one of those thermometers that tests the ear and you, you see your temperature's 39, you, you know, it's not the time to panic. Mm. Wait till you've had a bit of time to recover and cool right. down to, before you can check it. Yeah. I, I, I've done this before. This is the reason why I know it because the, a couple of weeks ago I went for a run and about half an hour later I was thinking, still feeling quite hot mm. and I measured my temperature and I was 39. I was thinking, God, have I got this? You know, and, and you know, an hour later I was back to normal. Right. So I mean, if not we hadn't had this discussion, I, I, I thought we were always, no matter how hard we went, that temperature was always the same. So no, no, your body allows it. something. Yeah. And, and my, my colleague, Jonathan Dugas, published papers again looking at our ultra-endurance races and in the cycle tour, within the first 20K, your body allows your temperature to get up to 38.5. And then it holds it there. So it actually seems to reset the mm. thermostat. Mm. It's like you've got an air conditioning unit in your office here, or in your homes where you're listening, or your car. And you can actually just dial that up two or three degrees and set a new point, and then it'll just sit there. Yeah. So these guys would get to 39 degrees by the 20K mark of, two ocean, of, of, of the cycle tour. And then they'd stay at 39. When they go downhill, it goes to 38.5. When they go uphill, it goes to 39.2. Sure. But it seems it seems that the body says, all right, you're exercising. We're just going to make, allow a, few, some make a few adjustments. We're going to allow you to get hotter, but we're, gonna, we're still going to regulate you. You're not going to lose homeostasis. We're just going to have it at a different set point, which yeah. is pretty cool when you think That's about it. Idea. I mean, other things, we could measure your lactate levels, your, your blood pH, your oxygen saturation levels. They'd all look abnormal, but they're not. They're actually quite normal and expected, and the body has allowed it to go where it got. As we always say in this podcast, you, the, the most amazing machine in the world is your own body. Mm. It does incredible things. And uh, that's why we're always fascinated by the things we talk about in this podcast. So that is us for our first episode of 2021. I hope you've got some really good um, insight into particularly those of you that have started an exercise program this year, one of your New Year's resolutions. We hope that you are still keeping that New Year's resolution going and that you've taken some of the advice that Ross and uh, some of the advice maybe I've even given um, to how you keep motivating yourself and I look forward to having some more in-depth discussions around the the sort of the, the, the nutrition side we've been badgered on a couple of occasions on our, our Twitter account to sports side pod if you want to get involved with us on that a couple of people asking why are you avoiding the nutrition issue <laughs> and in, in short it, it's because it's incredibly complicated and controversial but we will find a way to do that in a responsibly scientific way am I Am I, am I talking for both of us in that regard, Russ? Yeah, we are. Um, yeah. A couple of years ago, that was the bane of most sports <laughs> scientists' life was because everyone was going nuts about low-carb this and ketogenic and Atkins and so on. And um, those discussions tend to be quite exhausting when they're emotive. Yeah. It's a little bit like talking about COVID and vaccines right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but, but we'll do diet. Whether it's intermittent fasting, different types of diet, macronutrient diet, restrictive diets, that sort of stuff. So we, we, we must do it and we will, 
we just have to figure out a way to do it that it doesn't seem like a religious exercise. Yeah. <laughs> do it responsibly and based on the science that we always talk about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's us for now. And uh, yeah, let us know if you have any thoughts about our podcast and uh, ask any questions. We will obviously be talking to as many of you as possible on our uh, Twitter feed. And also forget you can support us on Patreon. A big thank you to our Patreon members. Uh, they are racking up uh, every single uh, week. We see new Patreon members. So a big thank you to our supporters on that it just keeps us motivated and we promise that we are dedicated to being much more regular in 2021 and we are setting time aside at least every two weeks and we hope that we will do more than that as we go throughout the year because there is a lot to talk about and hopefully there'll be an olympics to talk about but uh, from us uh, for now it's goodbye Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.